Good afternoon, everyone. Um, honored to be here, and I want to thank everyone for taking time out of their busy days to, to participate in this webinar. And, um, as you heard, I spent some time in the state police, 30 years, just under 30 years. But for me, this is personal, and it's personal because I grew up in poverty. Um, my mother came to, uh, is my hero, frankly, and she's my greatest inspiration, and she arrived in United States when she was 14 spoke no English. By 17 she had me and my brother. By 19, uh, if she was ever married, she was divorced because my father left our house. And it was a good thing that he did because he was an abusive drunk uh, and was very violent. And so it's personal because I understand what it's like to be hungry. I understand what it's like to be poor. And, and my mother's an inspiration because once my father left, she realized, um, as we lived in a low-income housing project in the city of New York on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, that she was going to do something about that, that she was going to change her circumstances. And had AHA existed, had Bridges Out of Poverty motto existed then, that would have made her journey so much easier. But when I turn to the Oxford English Dictionary and I look under success and hero and feminism, I see a picture of my mother. Because soon after my father left, she got her GED. And then some years later, um, got a associate's degree and became a practical licensed nurse. Uh, she went on to get a BA and became a registered nurse. And then before she retired, uh, she was a, had a master's degree in psychiatric nursing and was an administrator of nurses in a large New York City hospital. So I saw that journey. And for the first 10 years of that journey, we struggled. I can remember having white rice and ketchup at the end of the month. I also remember that as, as she began to move us out of poverty, that there were occasions when we had steak. Uh, during those first 10 years when I was a young boy, um, I would borrow her shopping cart and on, go out on the streets of New York City on the Lower East Side, go through the garbage cans, looking for two and three cent deposit bottles, which I could cash in. And frankly, uh, as I went through those. If I found fruit that was half eaten, that would, the other side looked okay, or a package of food, I would eat it. I was hungry. Uh, I would stand outside of the supermarket, and that particular supermarket was adjoined a, a community of affluence. And so I would, after cashing my bottles in and getting maybe 50, 60 cents, depending on how many bottles I found, I would often ask um, the elderly that were coming out of the supermarket whether they needed help with their groceries. And I would get some takers periodically, and they'd give me a few pennies, a nickel, a dime. And by the end of that Saturday morning, I might have a couple of bucks, and I would go out and get food. And, and sometimes I would splurge and go to the 25-cent movie theaters, and you could get to see two movies plus three cartoons. And I, I was in heaven if I had a weekend like that. And so as I'm looking at, at uh, the AHA process, the Bridges Out of Poverty, and the work that needs to be done here in the city of Albany. I've been in the city of Albany since, since 1997. And since then, I um, always participated, even throughout my 30 years, always participated in um, community-based organizations, not-for-profits, because I remembered where I came from. I remembered that it was difficult to navigate out of poverty. I'm no longer in poverty now, but I still remember what it was like. I still have the scars of that experience. My brother didn't make it out of poverty. Um, we chose completely opposite tracks, especially with respect to the criminal justice system. He, he became a participant, unfortunately, and is now um, dead and has been dead for 30 years. And I, of course, have 
became successful within the criminal justice system. So again, this is personal. To whom much is given, much is expected. And that's why I have committed myself uh, since uh, I became an adult to trying to change that, to serve the community, to serve the people. And once I got to Albany, uh, I saw the incredible level of poverty that uh, was part of the city of Albany. Now, strangely enough, Albany has been, you know, this area has been occupied uh, since uh, 10,000 BC, uh, first by the Iroquois and then the Algonquin um, First Nation peoples. And then the French were the first Europeans that got here, followed by the Dutch, uh, who at around 1609 uh, established a fort called Fort Orange. Uh, that ultimately became the city of Albany when the English got here. And it is said that George Washington named New York State the Empire State. And when one thinks about an empire state or an empire, one thinks of wealth and resources and riches. And of course, um, when we talk about resources, that's part of the definition of poverty. It's the extent to which someone does without resources, an individual does without resources, a community does without resources, an institution does without resources. And so I looked at the city of Albany, and it had always been an under-resourced city, even though it is the capital of the state of New York. Um, so as we move through, through uh, this journey today, as, as I move through my own journey of discovery and beginning to investigate what it's like to actually deal with changing poverty, um, one of the things that, that I wanted to make sure that we, that we were able to do, or that I was able to do, was to investigate what was the level of poverty in the city of Albany. The level of poverty in the city of Albany is, is uh, 23% of the people in the city of Albany live in poverty. Uh, over 44% of the family-headed, female-headed households live in poverty. And of course, when the demographic concerns, you look at, uh, at African-American and Latino families, uh, significant levels of poverty exist here. And of course, we all know that education, the lack of it, also will, in, will create a deeper uh, dive into poverty. And, and the more education you get, the easier it is to move yourself out of poverty. Now, what does that mean? mean in terms of numbers. In, when you look at the level of poverty in New York State, it's about 15% or so, a little under 16%. So again, the city has a higher rate of poverty than does the state as a whole. And with respect to Albany County, it also has a higher rate of poverty than the county, which is at 13%. Now, the city of Albany has a little less than 98,000 people living in it, and, and 23,700 and change are living in poverty in this city. And so as we look at that, you know, what are we going to do about that? How are we going to change that? The other thing that I wanted us to consider as we looked at that, uh, and as I began to talk to my colleagues and fellow stakeholders, was to investigate what does it mean, uh, you know, poverty versus a sustainable income. And New York State's Asset Limited Income Constrained uh, Employee Report, or the Alice Report, shows that there are over a million families in New York State living in, in poverty. And then there are two, over two million uh, that are Alice households or that they have and a, uh, uh, they are living under the uh, income that's sustainable. And what does that mean? That means two million households or so are living above the poverty line but below the Alice line. And that Alice line is for an individual and at any rate is 20,000, a little over $20,000 or $10.25 an hour for an individual. New York State recently began to raise its minimum wage with a target uh, minimum wage being $15 at some point in the near future. But at present, in 2017, it is 
$9.70. And so you can see that there are still many, many people, over a million people in New York State, who work in sales, restaurants, and healthcare industries that are paid below the Alice threshold. And that means that they cannot afford, because of increases in cost to household needs and basic needs like food, shelter, uh, transportation, uh, they're uh, living, uh, at, you know, struggling to maintain their life. Now, in the city of Albany, 32% of the children live in poverty. So, you know, look at that. Uh, that's very difficult. Now, New York State has the fourth highest level of poverty in the, in the, uh, of the cities that have applied for most recently, and I'll talk more about this later, the Empire Poverty Reduction Initiative coming out of the state of New York that Governor Cuomo pushed forward. Um, a question that I had and that many of my colleagues had in the city of Albany, the mayor, the uh, Commissioner of Youth and Workforce Services, uh, Jonathan Jones, uh, social justice advocates like Barbara Smith, uh, Dr. Green, and many, many others, we asked ourselves the question is, what were we going to do uh, together? What were we, how are we going to change that? And what areas that we think we needed to focus on as we move through this? So we, of course, education. Uh, education is critical um, because there are all, all of these things are intersectional. When you look at, there are many causes of poverty, and we've discussed uh, that. Uh, I'm sure that you all are aware of this. And so we wanted to address this in a holistic way. So we looked at how are we going to change the educational outcomes for children and engage their parents and also help them become educated if they're not. Help them um, avoid the criminal justice system, both at the adult and the juvenile justice area. And what kind of reform should we help engender uh, with respect to that? How do we enhance the workforce development, uh, training as well as job opportunities, and not simply Workforce development that talks about some of the soft skills as we discussed, which resume building and learning how to show up on time and all those things, but sector specific, industry sector specific training. Uh, and we have some initiatives that are moving in that direction, and I'll talk a little bit more about that as we move forward. And then, of course, entrepreneurial experiences and how do we expand that. Now, in 2012, one of the things that the city of Albany, its stakeholders, um, community based organizations, and many others came together. Uh, through an initiative out of the state university when the chancellor of the state university system, uh, Ms. Simfer, uh, came from Cincinnati with a STRIVE program, a cradle to career partnership, an initiative called Albany Promise. And Albany Promise um, was looking at understanding that if we were able to move children from cradle to career to enhance their success rate, to ensure that we approached it in a collaborative way, that made sure that whatever decisions we were going to make, we made them based upon evidence of, of programs that actually worked and that had demonstrated and measurable outcomes, that we might be able to accelerate the success of our, of our children and thereby move that generation out of poverty. And that, that certainly was one of the things we wanted to do. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, obviously, you know, I spent 30 years in the state police, and I, and I mentioned that I always volunteered for non-for-profits and other community-based organizations. And so uh, in 2012, I had already been volunteering for the Black and Latino Achievers Program for the Capital District YMCA and had the opportunity to become the executive director of the Albany YMCA, which is the only YMCA that's actually in the city of Albany. And so I became the executive director. And as I began the exploration into understanding the causes of poverty more deeply, not just from a personal perspective, but from a societal and institutional perspective, 
vis-a-vis -vis policies and other uh, dynamics. Uh, I wanted to, I came across the AHA process, I came across Bridges Out of Poverty, and I began to read and study with uh, that because we have a sister city in Schenectady who is deeply engaged in the Bridges Out of Poverty initiative and have, had been doing lots of training and lots of workshops. And so I participated in those and, and began to more deeply explore. With that said, as I understood Albany Promise, they began to um, look at how they could take action. What could they do? And so one of the things that they decided to do was to form action teams. And these action teams were the Early Childhood Success Action Team, the third and fourth grade action team, and the College and Career Action Team. As it turns out, as the executive director of the Albany YMCA, I was, I was participating in leading a very unique Y. And it's a unique Y for these following reasons. Um, it is the only YMCA that's directly connected to a school. It's connected to, to the Albany Academy, um, uh, uh, or PS, PS120, and their gymnasium is actually the Wise Gym, and so throughout the school year from September to June, from 9 a.m. to 3 a.m., that's where they do their physical education training, that's where they participate in their, in their competitive basketball and other team sports, uh, that's where they hold their Bring Your Dads to School Day events, right at the Albany YMCA's gym. In addition to that, what also makes the Y in Albany unique was that it has a library that's directly connected to it, the public library, part of the Albany Public Library system. And then finally, it had a full daycare center that served 65 families, many of those families that lived in poverty and required scholarshiping in order for them to have their children watched so that the parents could get an education or to go to work. Uh, and it was very successful. So what I did was that I assigned each one of my directors based on their expertise and the area of their responsibility so the director of the daycare I assigned to the early childhood success team, the director of the after-school program I assigned to third and fourth grade, and the director of the team programming I assigned to work in Albany Promise Action Teams to the college and career. Now everyone knows that if we are able to get a child educated very early on, if they come to school ready to learn, if they are also come to school with a social uh, emotional readiness, and understand and have begun reading and understand some of their basic colors, they're going to be more successful. The skills that are gained early on don't guarantee, but help enhance and ensure that that child will be successful throughout their career, both in terms of their school career as well as their professional career, wherever they decide to pursue their career. Again, if a child by the third grade isn't reading at grade level, isn't doing math and science at the grade level by third grade, then the, the likelihood of their succeeding is going to be much more difficult. Uh, there is a concept that I'm sure many of you know, which is called the uh, summer learning loss. And a poor child coming into school is generally going to be four months behind a child that's well-resourced, a middle-class child or a child that comes from a wealthy family. And what happens is they learn at the same rate while they're in school, but once summer comes, those families without resources aren't able to afford their children with the computers, with vacations, educational vacations, trips to museums, and other kinds of activities that would allow them to maintain their skill sets. So this poor child is going to fall another few months behind. And that phenomenon continues on until sometimes by the eighth grade, uh, they're going to drop out of school. And so uh, we wanted to make sure that we look very carefully at that as we move forward. And in my discussions with people in Albany Promise and at the Y and elsewhere, I would talk to them about 
the issues vis-a-vis, -vis, for instance, the tyranny of the moment and how some poor families are struggling to make ends meet and, are, and sometimes these children don't have future stories and we had to figure out a way of helping them escape that tyranny of the moment that Pablo Ferrer in his book, The Pedagogy of the Press, um, outlined with respect to that. Uh, as I said to you, as the executive director of the Y, that's one of the things that I made sure that we did. And then in 2014, President Obama launched My Brothers and Sisters Keeper. Now, he launched it because of the tragic death of Trayvon Martin. And what he wanted to do was to empower boys and young men of color because we all understand, and he specifically understood, that they had faced a disproportionate amount of challenges and obstacles to their own success. The city of Albany, through the people that I mentioned before, uh, Barbara Smith, Mayor Sheehan, and many, many others, got together and, and said, absolutely, Albany must be engaged in this because what President Obama did was challenge the nation and ask, ask cities and communities and tribal groups to jump on board my, my brother's keeper. The city of Albany, however, took it a step further because we recognized that that was ignoring. If we only focused on my brothers, we were ignoring my sisters. And so the city of Albany said, you know, we have to include girls and young women in the initiative that Albany is going to push forward. So we spent a year drafting an, an action plan and we submitted it to my Brothers Keepers Alliance and to the White House, and they absolutely agreed with us. And so uh, we launched My Brothers and Sisters Keeper on January 11th of, of 2016, after a year of developing that action plan. And I was asked if I would lead that, and I said absolutely. I, I thought it was absolutely something that I needed to continue to do and to be engaged with. So I left the Y and moved over to work on my Brothers and Sisters Keeper initiative because I thought that was so important and, and necessary. Now, as uh, interestingly enough, Albany promises goals and my Brothers Keeper's goal as well as my Brothers and Sisters Keeper's goal pretty much aligned for the first three. So entering school ready to learn, having a healthy start, reading at grade level by third grade, graduating from high school ready for college and career, completing secondary uh, and post-education, so going to college or getting vocational training. Uh, we want to make sure that it's not just college because, you know, anyone here who has ever tried to get a plumber on Christmas Eve knows how expensive that is and how valuable those skill sets are. We also wanted to make sure that there was entrepreneurial training involved in that. Uh, success in entering the workforce and keeping kids on track and providing them with a second chance, and that's just, you know, dealing with the criminal justice system. Now, the first three of these milestones, uh, we partnered with Albany Promise, MBSK, my brothers and sisters keeper, partnered with Albany Promise, and they would focus on that, those first three with the Albany School District and the SUNY University system. And MBSK would then focus on the last three, which was helping young people successfully enter the workforce, ensuring that opportunity youth, and that those youths 14 to 24 that are disconnected from school or work, had an opportunity to reconnect, figuring out ways of reconnecting them. And then, of course, reducing youth violence and providing a second chance, uh, hoping that uh, their contact with the criminal justice system was prevented, and if it wasn't prevented, was mitigated in a way that the outcome would be successful. 
And, I, and as I said to you, this is very personal. Uh, you know, I'm now a grandfather, and I have a three-year-old grandson, and I want him to be able to grow up in Albany and have all of the opportunities that can be afforded to him and to have, eliminate barriers to his own success as a, as a young boy of color at this juncture when he grows up to be a man of color. Um, when we looked at, at MBSK, we also, again, looked at, again, what are the issues that we're facing? And again, the intersectionality of all of these things with respect to the education of children, juvenile justice reform, uh, workforce development and entrepreneurial opportunities remains the key sectors that we wanted to do our work in. Once, once my brothers and sisters keeper was launched, um, I began to diligently work on these four areas, uh, along with my partners. I, this work cannot be done alone. It has to be done as a collaborative. It has to be done as a coalition. And so I ventured out to talk to all of the executive directors and leaders of the community-based organizations, uh, as many as that I could come in contact with. I talked to school district. Uh, pictured here is the former superintendent, superintendent of the Albany School District, who we tried to work very closely with. Um, and the mayor's office and um, leaders of the criminal justice system uh, to ensure that all of our allies could be pulled together in a coalition of deep collaboration, not merely partnership. Now, in the state of New York, Department of Education, in 2017, also uh, decided that they wanted to be involved, and it became the first state to actually accept President Obama's challenge. And it, was at, it managed to, to get the state legislature to commit $25, 25 million dollars, rather, to be granted out through the education department to school districts, colleges, and educational institutions to assist in achieving the goals of my brother's keeper in the, from the national perspective, now being adopted from the state's perspective. They not only did that, they went on to expand and add and amplify some of the of some of these six milestones by adding uh, six additional milestones, as you can see here. Those include, in, you know, equitable access to high-quality schools, preventing and early warning uh, systems and intervention services, making sure that the differentiated approaches for, uh, based on need and culture, responding to and very, being very forthright about it, structural and institutional racism. And of course, having comprehensive and coordinated support services, wraparound services, and, and services that fill the gaps for families, and making sure that, that families are engaged and communities are engaged in a trusted and respected way. Not, you know, people in poverty don't need to be fixed. This is not about fixing a problem. This is about working together so that we can create a socially, economically sustainable uh, process that allows these families to move forward and allows the children to move forward successfully achieving what they need to achieve for themselves. Now, in my working with the state ed and my brother's keeper, uh, I kept pushing for the inclusion of girls and young women. Obviously, the city of Albany was deeply committed to making sure all children were part of this, all children of color. We expanded the definition of, of children of color to include the refugee community coming from Burma, coming from the uh, Syria, uh, the Arab community, these, the, the Asian community, because we recognize that these individuals also engage, are, are, are sometimes living in poverty and need to be helped. And so in my conversations with Dr. Betty Rosa, during the first symposium of my brother's, the state education's MBK uh, symposium, 
I convinced her and got her to, to actually articulate that girls and young women would be included at any of these initiatives that were being um, promulgated by the Board of Regents. Now, it didn't make it into the paperwork, but at least it was verbalized at that first symposium. And so uh, I was gratified by that opportunity. And in our continuing meetings, in conversations with respect to poverty, with respect to the causes of poverty, uh, and looking at resources and what those resources are, whether it's physical resources, spiritual resources, relationships, all of the things that really make up our ability to be, uh, to engage, because, you know, you can live without, I mean, you can't live without money, but money is not the primary issue when we talk about poverty. There's all these other resources that have to be considered. Most recently, in, uh, you know, in the last several years, as we began to do this investigation, simultaneously the Attorney General Schneiderman of New York State began to do an investigation regarding the dis the disparate treatment of children of color uh, in the city schools district with respect to their suspension rates. And uh, as you can see from his quote, he's, he's quoting the school to prison pipeline uh, of our, in our school system and how it had to be closed. And one of the conversations I had uh, with the school district once they got a grant from the state uh, Department of Education's MBK was how could we utilize that grant? How could they utilize that grant to, to, because they're now required, they were now required to change their code of conduct. How could that be done in a way that actually addressed not just uh, the issues with respect to poverty, but addressed the mandate now issued by the Attorney General's office? And one of the ways that we, we did that was that I sat with um, many of the leadership within the school district and spoke to them along with uh, Dahlia Herring, who is a, a great advocate for the refugee community, and a great social justice individual here in Albany. Um, together we sat there and, and said, one of the things that they ought to engage in is restorative justice. And so as we did that, as we had that conversation with them, they bought into the idea that they should engage in restorative justice practices within the school district, that they should educate their administrators and the security uh, personnel and everyone else that's in the school moving forward to train the trainer so that they would have a restorative justice policy within the school district itself, allowing them to uh, deal with disciplinary issues in a much more just and fair way. Uh, and, they, and they did so, and it was, a, we felt, a very incredible success that we were able to do. Because again, we explained to them, we explained to the school district, that there are many causes of poverty. Of course, there are individual causes and individual behaviors and circumstances that yes, it's community conditions in addition to that that might and do uh, contribute to poverty. That there are exploitation, you know, rent-to-own businesses in and around the check cashing places and all sorts of other things that occur there to, that exploit people that live in poverty. And, and, and then there's the political and economic structures, which of course the school district uh, was participating in part of that. And we wanted to explain to them that they could either help mitigate the causes of poverty by, by dealing with restorative justice issues, um, being more progressive in the way they dealt with children, or they could exacerbate those things. One of the things that we found was that the children that were going through the magnetometers, in my conversations directly with these children as we went out and did town hall meetings and I went to have conversations with lots of the young teens and, and, and young adults that had gone through the Albany School District, was that as they went through the magnetometers, they always felt that, why, why do I have to go through the magnetometers? And, I, and they told me, I never see adults or teachers going through the magnetometers. Now, we understand that the reason for that is because of Columbine, because of Newtown, but that was not explained to them, uh, to these young people. 
And what they experienced was that they were, they, at least what they related to me was that they felt that they were dangerous, that they felt intruded upon, and particularly young, the young women in high school, um, sometimes it was males that were going through their gym bags and they would see personal items of the young women, and these young women felt offended by that and embarrassed by it in many instances. Um, so we had that conversation with them to make sure that when they look at their restorative justice piece, that they also look at their practices that they may not have considered. And this magnetometer issue was one of the practices that they had not considered, and they, they assured me that they would begin to take a look at that and see how they could change that. Uh, the other thing that we wanted to make sure that we did as we move forward with this was to look at what are the resources in the community that could be accessed. Um, how could we build capacity to create juvenile justice within, this, within the city of Albany and really within uh, the capital region? Because one of the unique things about the capital region is that we have three cities that are really um, connected to each other in, in a lot of significant ways. If you live in Albany, you'll go to the Troy Music Hall, you'll go to Schenectady's Proctors, uh, and poor families travel back and forth between these three cities. So there's a lot of migration, internal migration that occurs within these three cities. And so there has to be an alignment from a capital re district perspective of how we engage and how we uh, unite these resources and create uh, intersections and collaborations between all of these resources. And a lot of that is, is being done uh, at the present time. One of the other things that, that we engaged in was to help young people understand how to navigate um, police contact. And so what you see here is an article from 2012 in which the uh, Too Deep Entertainment and the Urban Stage Group, uh, headed by Mar Mark Bob Sample, um, participated in a training skit that helped young people learn how to successfully navigate an encounter with police, that both from the terms of na uh, being respectful to police and eliciting respect from the police. And so we wanted to make sure that because we understand that, that you know, if you end up in prison, that's going to exacerbate your poverty if you're already in poverty. And if you were not in poverty, you may end up in situational poverty when you come out, which may, after two generations, of course, become generational poverty. So we looked very carefully at the criminal justice system as well. And in my conversations with the district attorney's office as he formed the Youth Felony Diversion Board, we talked deeply about the same causes of poverty uh, and, this, and, the, and the constructs that come out of the AHA process. Uh, I ultimately joined this effort and became the board's chair. And it, it sort of reinforced what we all knew, that poverty, uh, you know, people that are in poverty are not inherently in, engaged in criminality, but poverty can exacerbate some, some decisions that might lead a young person to commit crimes that they would otherwise not commit had they not been in poverty. And so nearly 95% of the cases that we have diverted thus far, the, one of the major causes of that behavior was in fact poverty. Uh, and I, I wanna share, obviously what we wanted to do with this diversion board is change the direction in which a young person moves through the criminal justice system. The first step is of course, preventing them from engaging in the criminal justice system as a whole. But if we can, can we create uh, intersections in which alternatives can be determined and implemented. And so the DA's office is looking very carefully at a restorative justice model that he has engaged with and that we are using. Here's what we found. 
in our conversations with young people with respect to why were they, why did they commit the crimes that they committed? And, and so one young man said, as you can see here, that he was homeless, that he was hungry, and he saw no other way. He had no future story. And so, much like my brother, uh, he made some bad decisions. And he had no one to guide him in a different direction. And, you know, I'm here because somebody loved me, platonically. Help me find my way out of poverty. Help guide me if I was likely to make a bad decision. I knew I could go to an adult and say, and have a conversation with a trusted adult, a trusted messenger, who would say, no, you should consider this as opposed to that. And so I, I was able to navigate out. Unless we engage young people, unless we become their navigators and assist them, um, we may end up not helping them develop their own future story. One of the young ladies said she understood that what she did was very, very stupid, but because she lived in poverty and her mother could not afford to get her the things that she wanted, she ran a rather clever embezzlement scheme, which of course was not that clever because she got caught. But you can see that from just these two examples, that again, as we look at those that, in, that end up in prison, poverty is one of the major factors that, that causes that. Poverty hurts. We know that poverty hurts. And it hurts in so many different ways. And one of the things we want to do is change that, reduce that pain, eliminate the pain, or at least mitigate the pain that exists. The city of Albany, the Empire State Poverty Reduction Initiative was announced by the governor after he saw what Rochester had done a few years ago. And so he established a grant for cities across the state. 16 cities applied, and the city of Albany applied and was granted an award of $1.6 million. Now, that's not a lot of money. That's not enough money to, to create new programs, but it's enough money to enhance programs that already exist. Now, obviously, that award is a dubious distinction because that means that you have significant poverty in your community. And Albany, of the 16 cities that did apply, Albany, as I mentioned earlier, has the fourth highest level of poverty of the cities that applied. Buffalo having 77,000 people living in poverty, around 65 in Rochester, around 49,000 people in, in um, Syracuse, and as I mentioned earlier, a little under 24,000 people engaged in uh, living in poverty here in the city of Albany. And of the cities across the state, we're talking about Albany, the Bronx, and by the way, uh, those of us from New York City, I grew up in New York City, you don't say Bronx, you say the Bronx. Uh, Binghamton, Buffalo, Elmira, Hempstead, Jamestown, New Bern, Niagara Falls, Oneonta, Oswego, Rochester, Syracuse, Troy, uh, Utica, and Watertown are all part of the 16th City Consortium that have been awarded these monies and are working on developing uh, their, their poverty reduction initiative. Here in Albany, we're hoping to create a holistic and, and community-wide approach to reducing poverty. Uh, we're in the process of holding town hall meetings so that we can listen to the community itself, so that we can hear from them what they believe are the, the actual needs, what are the actual challenges, and what are the potential solutions from their perspective. Uh, for instance, you know, if you think, if you look at a child, and transportation is an issue that always comes up with respect to poverty, whether it's rural poverty, suburban poverty, or urban poverty, transportation is always an issue. Now, if I take it upon myself to say, well, I'm going to award you a car, young man or young woman, without asking them whether, in fact, that is the right solution, 
I won't know whether they have enough money for the gas, for the inspection, for the registration, for the insurance. If I had asked the question in the first place, they might have said to me, a year's worth of bus passes will do a world of good as opposed to the car you're giving me. So we want to make sure we hear directly from the community itself, that we hear directly from the experts in poverty, those people that are living in poverty and navigating poverty, because it takes a great deal of resiliency and resourcefulness to navigate poverty. Being in poverty is expensive. It's, it's not cheap to be poor. Uh, a lot of folks don't necessarily recognize that. We want to make sure that this is a community-wide effort. We want to make sure that when we're engaging in that, that we're looking and respecting people's strengths, that we're looking at their assets and not their deficits and, and focusing on, uh, from that perspective. We developed a timeline for this initiative, and I have been asked to lead this initiative. I'm now uh, simultaneously the executive director of my brothers and sisters keeper and a project lead for the city of Albany's poverty reduction initiative. Um, I began that work on March 1st of this year, and we had our first steering committee meeting on March 17th. That steering committee is comprised of leaders from the community, business leaders, education leaders, um, civic leaders, as well as experts uh, from the community that are actually living in poverty. We're hoping to, for the next several months, Conduct a listening tour, and I understand that that's a cliched term, but it still is true. I want to, and we want to be able to hear directly from the community, as I've been saying, by October, because then we can craft the right questions to ask, because we will have been informed by those folks that navigate this every single day, that know which agencies are doing the right kind of work that's measurable, that their outcomes are right, know which agencies treat them with respect and treat them as, as resourced um, capable human beings, and which do not. And so once we ask the right questions and formulate the right questions, then we can send those out as in an RFP. By sometime in November, we should receive their proposals back. Uh, again, because we've been informed by the community uh, and by all these stakeholders, we'll be able to do a very credible uh, evaluation of the proposals and begin to score those and then make by December make the awards, get the contract signed, and then for the next year and change, monitor, evaluate, and hold accountable those entities that have been awarded this money to make sure that they are focusing on the outcomes, not just outputs. Now, in order to support the steering committee, we've also uh, developed a plan which we're going to have advisory groups, which will include community members, as well as experts in this in the particular area that we're talking about so for instance we want to talk about system change what are the policies procedures and, and regulations that exist at the state federal and local level or within agencies themselves that either mitigate poverty or are in fact barriers to somebody getting out of poverty and what recommendations can we make with respect to that so this group will be inspecting and reviewing that um, with respect to workforce development we want to have make sure that we have those individual agencies and entities that have developed workforce initiatives and curricula come together and look very carefully at their curricula and see whether or not these, the outcomes of that training, in fact, leads to sustainable outcomes over time. We can train 100 people, but if only one of them actually has a job two years after that training, has that training been successful? How can it be improved? The adult advisory group is really uh, the caretakers 
when you're in poverty, the family structure is going to be very unique, very different. Um, you'll have, because of the, some of the issues of incarceration and some of the other issues that may occur, you might have grandmothers raising children, grandfathers raising children. You might have an older brother raising children. You might have stepdads and stepmoms raising children. So we want to hear from that, com that part of, the, of, the, of our community. We also directly want to hear from the youth um, and, and hear what they have to say. I want to thank everyone for taking time out of their busy days to, to participate in this webinar.